Today's guest is PMH Atwater. She is an international authority on near-death experiences and spiritual transformations, and she is an author of 18 books on or related to near-death experiences. And her newest book is The Forever Angels, Near-Death Experiences in Childhood and Their Lifelong Impact. And I just want to add one more thing. She's got great energy. Just wait until you see her. PMH, thank you so very, very much for joining me today. I really appreciate you giving me some of your time. Oh, it's a privilege and a joy. You know, it's just before Christmas, mm-hmm. and, and it's just great. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting is that you, that you mentioned Christmas, and so I saw a post today that said Christmas is not a season, it's a feeling. What do you think about that? It's both. It's, it's everything. Both. It's more than that. Yes. Yeah. It's great. All right. Well, my guests love to hear about near-death experiences. So how did you get started in all this? I died. (laughs) Whoa. Literally. I died. What happened? I died died three times in 1977 while I was... Mm -hmm. I became pregnant, Mm -hmm. miscarried, and uh, it was... All of those, just one thing after another happened to me. Um, I died. My first death was January the 2nd, 1977. The second one was January 4, 1977. Uh, the third one was March um, March 29. Mm-hmm. And then later that year, I had three major re- relapses, including total adrenal failure. I was working with a blood pressure reading of 60 over 60, which means I wasn't doing too good. Yeah. And it uh, means I collapsed. Mm-hmm. In my third near-death experience, I was told by a voice um, that was so big, it was so huge, it was so... Uh, it was just so massive and I was told by that voice I called it the voice like none other mm-hmm. because I didn't know what else to call it and that voice said and I'm quoting test revelation you are to do the research one book for each death it explain to me what that all meant. Um, death uh, book number one was not named. I kind of think maybe it was it was coming back to life, which was my first major book, but I don't know. Uh, the second book was Future Memory, and the third book was A Manual for Developing Humans. Both of those books are done; they're out out mm-hmm. there. Anybody can get them. Um, and then it explained to me what I was to do with my research. Um, and as soon as I was well enough, I began my work. That was in 1978. Um, I, I, I met Elizabeth Kubler-Ross at O'Hare Airport. Mm-hmm. I was, I was there to, um, spend some time with a favorite aunt and uncle and 
um, had a little extra time and was kind of walking around O'Hare Airport and I saw Elizabeth Kudorotz because I'd seen her pictures and I walked up to her, introduced myself and her plane was late going to Europe. So we sat on a bench, just the two of us visiting like a couple of school girls. And I told her about my near-death experience. And she was the one who said I was a near-death survivor. She did not use the word experiencer. Mm. She used the word survivor. Interesting. And she was the one who told me about the, the pattern. She never mentioned Raymond Moody's name. Never. Or his book. Nothing. All I had to go on was what she said. And the fact that she validated my experience. And that's all I needed. I was a cop's kid. I was raised in a police station. So I used police investigative techniques as my protocol. Mm -hmm. And dad always, dad always said that the body says more than the mouth does. So you're watching bodies. You're watching how they, how they use their shoulders, their arms, their head their hips, um, you're watching bodies very carefully as well as listening to what they say. And, um, and dad was always very, very clear about what people say. Um, because, you know, um, let's say there's a given accident. There's an accident. And there are, say, three people that watch or saw it, a, a good cop can only go up to an individual individual and say, did you see anything? If the individual says car or accident, then and then only can the police officer use that word. So um, the individual must speak first, must um, describe things first, not the researcher and this is one of the um uh, you know one of the problems i have or one of the um you know it it just kind of bothers me with some of this scientific research when you're when you're using um um you're using these computer programs and they give you all these questions to uh, ask individuals um, any given near-death experience and I'm saying to myself but you're using words before the individual you cannot do that and get good material so I'm one of these (laughs) Jeff I'm one of these feisty people Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah I am I'm a little scrappy Mm-hmm. That's okay. That uh, I I get out there in the people's homes. I get out there talking, um, researching the family as well as the individual, um, the health healthcare provider, whoever will talk to me. Um, and I just keep um, digging and digging and looking and looking and listening and listening and. Um, that that's how I do my work. It sounds. I'm, I, I'm the cop on the beat. <laughs> yeah, the cop on the near death beat. Uh, it sounds yep, like to, sure 
it sounds like to me what you were trying to say is that you don't lead the witness, that you wait for them to get, you know, offer up their information. Is that correct? No, you bet I don't lead them. Right. Uh, I, I, I ask, I, I ask them what they went through, what they're going through now, mm-hmm. how, how they're living, what mm-hmm. they're thinking, what mm-hmm. they're saying, what life is like. You, you bet. And doing just that opened up doors and, um, all kinds of stories, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of information, all kinds of observations mm-hmm. and, um, um, that's where I am now. When we first started today, you said, and I think you called it the voice. And now in retrospect, do you still call it the voice? And if so, can you identify? Like you call it the voice like me. I call it the voice like that. Okay. Well, what makes yes, me think? I do. What, what makes me think is, is that your newest book is titled The Forever Angels, which kind of gives it a religious tone to me. So is the voice itself? No, not necessarily. Have, have angels a, are angels. You know, anybody can see an angel. Um, doesn't matter where you are. The word angel certainly is more European or... Uh, something you would find in the United States. Um, if you're in another country, um, they'll use different terms. But here in this country, uh, we often often use the, the term angel. Mm-hmm. With little bitty ones, mm-hmm. uh, they don't use that term at all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the bright ones or the loving people. They don't use the term angel at all. Um, usually not until the child is about five or six. <clears throat> Sometimes they'll use that term sooner if they've heard it in the family mm-hmm. or if they've heard it on television or something like that. But your little bit, bitty ones, they don't use that term at all. No. But we call that that. You know, <laughs> your publisher picks your title. Not the author. <laughs> Your publisher picks the title. Yeah. And so we've got we've got the Forever Angels. <laughs> uh, I see. What kind of similarities did you see when you were doing your research with children that they would seem to say over and over? Again? Well, I want to be I want to be really specific here. All right. And say, you know, I've I've done a, a lot of work with with children. Of various ages, but this book, the Forever Angels, is about the tiny little little ones. Yes. So this is from birth to age of five, and I want to be very specific here uh, because th- these y- youngest ones are not like older kids. They're not like tweens and teens. They're not like adults. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the kind of material that comes out of really looking at 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 at, at um, this particular age group, this is three hundred and ninety-seven people here. Mm-hmm. So this is a major study. We're we're seeing. I'm seeing here in doing this that uh, 
there's a lot of new information, different information, um, information that really challenges what we think of as the near-death experience. Remember, birth to the age of five, most of these kids um, have no before. So, so there's no way of them comparing anything. Yeah. You know, I mean, most of your near-death experiences are about older kids or older people, so they can compare things. But the little bitty ones, they can't compare anything at all. Um, and, and I was amazed in this, in this study how many remember their birth. Mm. How many um, remember being in the womb? You know, it's like wake up call. You, <laughs> you know, wake up here. We, we've got, I had two that remembered their conception. Mm. They were there wow. when their parents conceived them. And one of them drew a picture of it, and and when they were older, and and then showed the parents, and described everything that the parents were doing, much to the embarrassment of the parents. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, it just rocked their boat. You know, it's just like what <laughs> you were there for conception. Yeah, it's like whoa. Yeah. Uh, but so many of them re remember uh, being in the womb. Uh, uh, um, this case, Penny. Uh, Pe um, Penny was in the womb, and her mother was a smoker. Mm. Uh, let me just read this. Sure. The most profound memory was my mother smoking. I remember getting excited in utero when she would feel anxious because I knew that the bad taste was coming and soon I would be high. Mm. You know, she didn't like her mother smoking at all. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, the kinds of things that they remember, it's, uh, it's like, it's, it's like for parents, uh, for the rest of us who are adults, we have to, we have to sort of stand back and say, wait a minute here. <laughs> uh, whoa. <laughs> um, this, this, this really challenges mm -hmm. what we think of as little bitty ones, babies coming into the world, into the world, not knowing anything. Um, you know, laying there in, in the bassinet, you know, gooing and cooing, what's going through their mind? A lot more than you think they mm. <laughs> that's going through their mind. Mm. And um, it's just fantastic. What, what we as human beings, what we're capable of, what our mind is capable of, what our our consciousness beginning in the womb, and we don't forget that. 
many times. Don't forget that. Um, what I did with this study, 397 people, um, many of them, the, the first study I did was back in the 90s. And it was with little bitty ones and um, going up to maybe their 20s or so. Uh, the youngest I actually um, did research with, kind kindergarten age. So, uh, and some of them were a little bit younger than that. And, and you can never, never, never have your eyes over the child's eyes. Hmm. Your eyes must be the same level. Interesting. Otherwise, the child will think you're in a power position. Um, so for them to talk to you as an equal, for them to be open to you, you have to have your eyes at the same level they are. So if they're little bitty ones, <laughs> you know what you're doing. You're on your belly on the floor mm. <laughs> working with these little kids. And then, and then the second group, uh, that I did about maybe four years ago or so. I went after those who were in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s who could remember having had a near-death experience between um, birth and the age of five. And I said to them, did having such an experience like this at such a tender age, did that have any effect on your life growing up and, mm -hmm. you know, and getting your jobs and careers, getting married and, and having kids of your own and grandkids, did it make any difference in your life? I, I was just, you know, and if it did, tell me about it. So in essence, I was asking for essays and an, I was swamped. And some of those essays that came back to me were so tear-stained that I could hardly read them. Mm. And one woman was, was very, very specific. And she said, you researchers, you never go for the poor people, people in poverty. So I made it a, 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 I made it a point to go for people in poverty, and and this one woman had to save up her her pennies and dimes and nickels until she could afford the stamps to send me her story. Uh, I was just so taken that that she would do that, um, and I just. Um, I, I was just so humbled by, by the people that spoke and they had, they had to verify. And, and this one woman in her eighties, believe it or not, she, she, she had a sister that was in her late sixties who could verify her old, older sister's experience. So the, the, you know, the, that was just an incredible thing. Um, but they, they, they're clear, sharp memories. Uh, just fantastic. The, this one guy, he just he just retired. And he was like, 
69 years old and you know he sent me his es- his essay and uh, and, uh, and I was just I mean it was like 50 pages long complete mm. with photographs of his family I mean these people were so hungry to talk about their life mm. that uh it, it, I was just bowed over. I was just bowed over uh, uh, by what I was able to find. And um, it, it's just, it's absolutely going to blow you away. Uh, most most of these little ones, they call themselves birthers. Hmm. I didn't call them that, but they call themselves that. Hmm. It, it, it's, it's, it's like, what it's like to be born awake and aware. Think about that. Mm. What is it like to be born awake and aware? And most of them were. And, you know, you talk about out-of-body experiences. Um, that was normal for them. They would be able to see their parents in in another room or see what's going on uh, because they went there. Mm-hmm. Um, so this idea of out-of-body experiences, that's really quite normal, actually, for um, little bitty ones. They, they just were able to keep track of what's going on in that in that manner, um, but but the kinds of of, of things that happened happened. Um, I had uh, three people in my research base who were raised in voodoo households. Mm. They had never heard of the word Bible, never heard of the word Jesus. None of that stuff. Never heard the word God. They were they were voodoo's, hmm. voodoo people. And these three people, in their near death experiences, and these are little kids now, were visited by Jesus, and they called Jesus by name. And I, it's just like, oh, wait a minute here. <laughs> How did that happen? Um. I had um, a, a lot, most of these cases came from drownings, um, high fever, accidents, this kind of thing. Um, but a lot of a child abuse. Hmm. And I had a number of cases. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to even even admit this. Where families, that is to say mom and dad, would have the child only for the purpose of being sacrificed on Satan's altar. Wow. And I had one of those, one of those um, who had 17 near-death experiences by the time she was about nine or ten. Seventeen. I mean, it, it just grabs your heart. It just grabs your heart. Hmm. 
This is the- um, and, and you know, I talk about a lot of these cases in the book. I have a lot of pictures that people drew. Um, but then, uh, um, you, you know, really studying what happened to these people, and it's uh, it's phenomenal. Um, th- th- this one rape case, the child, the little girl, was two years old, mm-hmm. and she was raped by a family friend, mm-hmm. and often he would come into her bedroom. He would shut the door so nobody could see. He would um, get on her bed, uh, on top of her, and um, her her name. The um, the drawing is in the book Alma drawing, and and she's drawing herself up on the ceiling, looking down as she's being raped. And I hope you've got some psychologists listening. I hope you have some therapists listening. I hope, hope you have, have people listening who know about children because a child will always or nearly always leave their body and look at their body from a place apart, like, like the ceiling looking back down. And I want you all to know that's not just an out-of-body experience. That is a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. Any child, when they have a, um, a fever, whatever is going on, they're sick, they're they're being uh, assaulted, whatever. That child will 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 leave their body because it's their way to save their soul. It's their way to save their identity. It's their it's their way to save who they are. It's a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. So we get a lot of these things uh, in the book. <laughs> And, and especially the dark, dark light experience. Did a lot of your research subjects say that they had past life reviews or saw into their past lives at such a young age? Uh, a few. Um, and I'm going to say a few. There are some drawings. Um, some of them very uh, exact and intricate that they drew their past life. Uh-huh. So I did have a few of those, but very few. Hmm. And and um, I'm glad you asked that question because it brings up a different way of viewing things. Remember, these are kids who can, cannot um, compare anything. So they're coming in Um, they're they're coming in still in the light. Um, They're coming in from light-filled worlds so that they're looking at life as this flow, this incredible light flow. And in that flow, every once in a while, there's a dip. That's a life. 
And then it comes back up to the flow. And once in a while, there's another dip. And they come back up into the, into the flow. And, and, and they really talk a lot about that flow. And, and, and the biggest challenge they have in coming into to bodies is what's a body? Hmm. So one of their biggest challenges is uh, finding out what earth life is like, bodies are like, learning is like, mom and dad is like, br- brothers and sisters are like, uh, going to school. And invariably, these kids know more than anybody else. Um, they're smart. And, and <laughs> I, I was just floored by how intelligent these youngsters are. And, and growing up, um, it's it, 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 phenomenal how intelligent they are. Um, it, it, it's almost as if, well, how do I put this? Most of them, by the time they're in the first grade, are abstracting. I mean that they're abstracting. Let, let me give you an example. Okay. There's this there's this boy in Georgia, and um, he drowns. He's about not quite six years six years old. Drown. Uh, he's in first grade. He drowns about halfway through school. Comes back and. <laughs> This kid is reading Greek mythology and understands it. And he asked his teacher, who wrote Robinson Crusoe? Hmm. I mean, like, most kids in the first grade are reading C-Spot, Ron, Dick, and Jane. Mm-hmm. He's coming back reading Greek mythology. Yeah. Um. Yeah. 397 people and 90% of them um, do not how do I put this into words? 90% of them do not relate to their parents. Um, it's it's it's, it's, it's um, th- they don't bond with their parents. Hmm. That doesn't mean they don't love them. They can love them, but they don't bond with them. They never bond with them because they're still part of that other world. When they come, at, what, when they're in school, they know more than the teacher does. Most of them do. Um, let me give you some uh, examples here of, of, of intelligence. Uh, let me give you some numbers here. Well, it sounds like for um, those abilities, they're accessing past life memories. I, I cannot validate past life memories. I cannot even validate the word past life. Mm-hmm. What I can validate is that 
these people are coming in so filled with light, so filled with intelligence, so filled with knowing that is that it is as if they are either fully developed consciously or um, they have a mind that works differently. So, um, um, we're thinking here in terms of how to look at these people, not in terms of past lives, but in terms of a greater life. Beyond past lives. Let, let me talk then in terms of how they are now. Um, so from birth until about 15 years of age, when, I, 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 I'm going to go from, 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 from birth to about six years of age. Forty-eight percent were scoring between one hundred and fifty to one hundred and sixty on standard IQ tests. Mm. Those who had those who had a dark light experience instead of a bright light experience were scoring 180 and above when they were finally able to take IQ tests. What is a dark light experience? Significant enhancement of intelligence. We're talking about lights here. Mm-hmm. And, and what we're what I'm finding with kids the, the children what will describe lights and they will describe this very raw piercing um just incredible powerful light. And then they'll describe this black or dark light. Often it will have maybe purple tinges to it. And then they'll describe this very bright or white light. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it will have gold or silver tinges to it. And and, and when you're talking to adults, and they're talking about this very bright or white light experience, uh, they're saying, you know, this is God. You know, this is this is this incredible power on the other side of life. But the kids are a little different. And they, they talk about this very bright 
or white light and they say, well, that's father light. Hmm. And they talk about this, this dark or black light, that's mother light. Hmm. And this raw piercing light, that's God's light. Hmm. And they say, the, the bright light, the bright white light, the father light and the mother light, they come from God's light. Hmm. And God's light is the superior light. Um, so, you know, uh, one in particular, and her drawing is in the book, by the way, of her, of her black light experience. Her name is Star. Hmm. Um, and she tries to, 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 draw, to draw being in this black light. And she says, what, what I remember pre-utero was a room with black living walls. There were no words. There were no words exchanged, only thoughts. We were near the end and I was preparing for my final choice, i.e. She, she was getting ready to be born. Um, but, you know, kids, kids talk about all these kinds of lights and a child will never use the word angel. Mm -hmm. uh, a really young ch child, unless they're, you know, uh, introduced to that term by their parents, they will almost always call them the loving ones, the bright ones. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, these very, very loving people, mm -hmm. and and they, and they just love. Um. They're just filled with this love when they're coming in, um, and 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 the kind of kind of changes that that um, uh, that they face when when they're when they're very very little, and and, and the kind of changes that they face coming in. Uh, you know, we've talked about abstracting. Many, many of them um, come in with stenesthesia. This is very common. Even in adults, we have a lot of adults who have stenesthesia. Uh, but it's very common with children. Stenesthesia is an elaboration of the limbic system in the brain where you're coming in with... Um, um, different or multiple sensing um, abilities. Let me give you an example of stenesthesia. I was born with stenesthesia. No, I wasn't a child near-death mm -hmm. experiencer, but I just happened to have been born with it. And I was the only kid in the first grade who could smell color, see music, and hear numbers. That means that um, I was called a liar over and over and over again in the first grade. The teacher, the principal of the mm -hmm. school, they said I was a liar. I was not a liar. I saw uh, I saw everything in that way. 
um, many pe people with synesthesia then have different ways of of sensing things that does not mean that they're um, that they're odd. It doesn't mean they're lying. It doesn't mean they're troubled. They just have have a different way of sensing things, and and you know you find that a lot with these near death kids, and um, they they um, they come in. Let me give you a little bit more about these kids um, coming in. Mm -hmm. um, 70 uh 70 percent have very very vivid dreams we've got um, um 84 percent empathic highly intelligent 75 percent let me give you ah uh, 74 percent remember that percentage 74 percent 74 74 percent when they grow up are highly highly intelligent they become very very successful a number more were millionaires that same percentage 74 percent come in suicide prone. Hmm. So we've got 74% highly successful, 74% suicide ideation. We've got to wake up here in the near-death community. Um suicide percent with adults is maybe about oh 5% maybe with kids it's huge um let's talk about this hmm. i 34 34 34 Sorry, 34% were positive about having an NDE. They were excited about it. But 61% were negative having had a near-death experience. They didn't like it. Um, we've got here... I'm looking at these people. It didn't matter whether they were the real young ones or the older ones looking back. We've still got this high percentage that want to go back. We're not looking at a child's eyes. We're not looking at the experience of the child's eyes. We're not looking at the, it, um, how a child thinks. 
a child thinks, aha, I was in this beautiful, wonderful place, loving people, bright lights, wonderful people, but I wasn't breathing. Hmm. Now I'm breathing, but that lovely, wonderful place is gone. I want to get back there. A child doesn't think in terms of harm. They want their way of getting back there is to stop their breathing. Hmm. They don't think in terms of suicide as being bad. The average kid doesn't doesn't think in those terms. They're thinking of, oh, this is the way to get back. So I have uh, all, all of your, you know, therapists out there, parents out there, anybody who's listening, please get the book, The Forever Angels. There are chapters in there on P... T-S-D, comparing that with NDEs. Let's look at this. My first book that I did on this uh, was The New Children and Near-Death Experiences. And in the back of that book is a lot of resources, how to handle this, how to work with the kids. And believe it, uh, believe it or not, the best and easiest and quickest way to handle this phenomenon is just to teach the kids how to do, how to do visualizations. Hmm. That that way they can get back, be there, come back again, and it, and 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 they can go back and forth, and they feel good about it. They feel feel all right about it it helps a lot with this idea of being lost Uh, uh, you know this idea of they've lost their home and it it makes a huge huge difference in in this idea uh, you know it most near-death experience experiences experiencers they're homesick for heaven they want to go back because they're homesick for heaven mm. that's all it is mm. it's not that big of a deal really yet it is a big deal in, in the way we respond to it the 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 way we handle it, what we do with our children. The the big thing I want to say here is, I call it out of the out of the mouth of babes syndrome. We adults want to hear. We want to hear what the children are saying. We want to hear these incredible stories out of the mouth of babes, these incredible stories. But how many
many people go back 10 years later and talk to that same child? How many people go back 15 years later and talk to that same child? Well, what, what is it? What is it like for them growing up? That's when you get the puzzles. That's when you get the difficulties. What is it like for that child growing up? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and 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 they're they're brilliant. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, uh, yeah, you know. Well, first of all, you've been researching near death since the seventies. So, is it safe to be able to call you the mother of near death experiences? Well, you know, we 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 call. Uh, we call Raymond Moody mm-hmm. the father of the near-death experience. Right. I suppose you could call me the mother of the after effects. <laughs> okay. What do you think most people who have not had near-death experiences, what are their misconceptions about people who have? If you've had a near-death ex- experience, you don't think the same way you did before. You don't talk the same way you did before. You don't act the same way you did before. So we're getting now into adults, especially our teenagers. How do you handle yourself? How do you talk? If you've had a near-death, if you've had a near-death experience, because once you've had a near-death experience, you're different. With some people, certainly more different than others. Especially this idea of love and unconditional love. You get this a lot with adults. Unconditional love. With adults, they're talking so much about how different they are and and how incredible life is. And, and, And they're Well, look, the divorce rate of adults is is somewhere between 71 to 80% within about five years of their experience. Hmm. That's massive. Yeah. That's huge. So when we're talking about adults and adult experiencers, and this puzzle, I call it a puzzle about unconditional love. Um, let me give you some example, examples here about adults. You want to get my book, you know, Near-Death Experiencer, Near-Death Experiences, the rest of the story. Um, ad- ad- adults... They just love everybody. This example, 
um, a, 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 a real estate agent in Southern California, um, two marriages, um, uh, is in his second marriage. He has children with the second marriage. And, and his near-death experience, and he's telling me, um, I've never been so loving. I love my wife more than I could ever love. I love my children more. I, I love my associates more. I, I, I love my, um, the, the, the people who come to see me. I, I love them. I love them more than I ever thought I could love. And he's just so excited. And, and the next year I hear from him again. And he's saying to me, he says, I don't understand this. My children don't want to be seen in the same room with me. My, my wife turns away from me. Hmm. Uh, my clients, they also are, also are turning away from me. Wow. I don't understand this. I'm more loving now than I've ever been, been and and I'm I'm turning people away from me. Why? And 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 he walks out. Um I never heard from the man again. I think this big puzzle about unconditional love, we forget that unconditional love, it's God's love. It's agape. It's where you see every woman as your mother, your sister, your daughter, your aunt. Every man is, is your husband, your brother, your son, your uncle. And it's not that you, you, you uh, it's not that you can't tell them apart. It's just you tend to love them all equally. And and that causes so much confusion in families because the spouse the 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 other one the spouse they think you're 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 flirting mm. you know uh, you know they 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 don't understand mm. um they don't understand the differences um let me give you a, a little example of my own experience. I have three children. My oldest daughter came to me one day. I come from Idaho. Mm -hmm. I'm Western woman, Idaho, uh -huh. Uh -huh. and we're we're all plains we're all plain speakers back in Idaho. Yeah, uh, you get it right for you get it right away up front, and so my. My older daughter came to me and she said, well, she had, she had her hands on her hips. She says, well, you're friendlier now than you used to be. And I like talking to you. But you're not mom. And I want mom back. <laughs> well, you know, we've, we spent years searching for that woman. Never did find her. I don't know what happened to her. It's this, it's this idea that you're changed, 
um, some are changed more than others, but many of us are changed remarkably so. What, what I tell experiencers is the first thing you need to learn after a near-death experiencer, after a near-death experiencer, yeah, you need to uh, you need to learn again how to talk and um, and how to be with people, how to think and how to talk because you're not the same as you were before. You need to relearn that. Um, in uh, near-death conferences, for instance, we often have rooms or places where um, the family of experiencers can come or the spouse can come and they can learn then, talk, learn about um, how differently uh, the the, the near-death experience is how it affects people. And very often, you know, if the family will listen to the experiencer and, um, you know, um, just listen to them and let them tell their story without any judgment, without any criticism, they find out that, hey, they start to change themselves. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and, and, and this happens quite often mm -hmm. when the family is, is you know, we will just slow down and listen to the experiencer. And hey, I did, I did the same thing in a way with children. Um, I wrote what is called the Animal Light series, mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a book. It, it, it's six children's books. It's um, all animals, different kinds of animals, um, uh, hedgehogs, fawns, um, horses, kittens, all, all different kinds of animals. And, and, the, and the animal then comes from the light, the other worlds, comes into the mama into her womb and and remembers being in the womb and then they're born and uh and about miscarriages and twins and all this kind of thing and uh then the children can read the book with with mom and dad and mom and dad can say well did did you um, can you remember anything like Busy Betty Wiggles? Yeah. And it opens up that door then for parents to be able to talk to their kids. And, um, you know, it opens up that, mem that memory. Mm -hmm. What can the child remember about their near-death about life. It's mm -hmm. a great idea. About not just their experience, but about any child. Uh, uh, being in the womb, being born. How much can any child remember? 
So the Animal Light series, it's on, you know, Amazon.com. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, I wrote that for the for the little kids and the parents mm-hmm. so they, they can explore. That's a great idea. You've been involved with near death for so long. What still inspires you about near death to keep you involved with it? About life. Mm. About who we are. What inspires me so much is that these individuals coming back with new or enhanced abilities, new or enhanced memories, it's as if We are co-creators with the creator. It's as if we are, it's as if we are so enhanced by just allowing ourselves to be who we really are. That that just thrills me to realize how incredible the human being is, the soul of each and every one of us, how powerful we all really are. That just thrills me to no end. How vast life is on any plane, in any dimension, how vast life is. Yeah, Mm. that thrills me even today. Oh, that's great. Do you interact with the public? Do you have a Facebook page? Do you have an, a website if people want to oh, ask sure. you questions? Or are you more sure. of a... How All the, of that and above. You know, uh, 18 books. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Uh, my website, www.pmhatwater. Mm-hmm. So it's my name.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I produce a free monthly newsletter. Oh, great. You, you can get on uh, my website, www.pmhatwater.com. You get into the newsletter section. Uh, there is an archive there. You can go back and um, I'll go over uh, previous issues. Um, 
<laughs> I tell everybody my newsletter is only for the curious. Hmm. So if you're not curious, you won't like my newsletter. But if you're curious, you're just going to love it. Hmm. Uh, it covers all kinds of things. And of course, you know, I, I, um, I have book sales, certainly on my website. Hmm. I have charts. I have articles. I have all kinds of, of material on, uh, on my website. So you're just going to love it. <laughs> um, um, uh, exploring. Um, yeah, pmhatwater.com. Do you have any new projects that you're working on that you want us to know about? Well, <laughs> I've started my 19th book. And it's a, it's a book about my life, my death, my research. And um, it's a book uh, like no other. <laughs> I've, I've never written a book like this before. Mm. And it's scary. Wow. And it's, it's, it's very scary. Um, yeah. How, how, how do I even talk about it? I really can't talk about it except to say um, this is the book where I reveal everything that I can about what I've seen and what I've learned and what it means. Well, I know you can't talk about it, but you know, you've really got me curious when you're saying it's scary. <laughs> so what is so scary about this? At least can you give us a hint? Think completely and totally open. Mm. Um, <laughs> you, you know, um, having a near-death experience changes you in remarkable ways. It turns you around. It introduces you to worlds without end. And when, when you come back, It's really a challenge to accept the life you're living now to the to accept the life you have 
realizing what that life really is. It's so much more than you can possibly describe. I don't know what else I can say. I don't think you have to say anything else. It's just more. All right, PMH, before we wrap it up here, can you give us one last message to carry on with us? The near-death experience really shows us how incredibly vast and wonderful we all are. It shows us. It shows us all that there really is a higher source. You can call it God. You can call it one. I don't care what you call it. There really is a higher source or force. There really is a reason and purpose for life. There really is incredible vastness to all that we are and could be and want to be and can be. Don't believe any limitation. We are more. We are bigger and better than we could ever dream, ever dream that we are. Yeah. Thank you. All right, PMH, I really appreciate you being a guest with me. I appreciate you giving me some of your time, and I wish you massive success with this next book. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. And I need to get yeah, you, it's, it's, yeah. when it's finished, I need to get you back on so we can talk about it. So you can come uh, on and so yeah. you can so you can come on and scare <laughs> us. I'm just kidding. It would scare you. <laughs> it would. You betcha. <laughs> oh, Jeff, you've just been wonderful. Mm. You've been one wonderful. Well, thank you. You um, are a terrific guest. Well, I, I, I'm sorry for all the hesitations. Mm -hmm. Um. It would be wonderful if my words and voice flowed better. Mm -hmm. This would be absolutely great. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I get sort of um, stuck. That's okay. <laughs> and, and, and you're so patient. And, uh, and uh, you know, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. Well, I, I thank you. I double thank you because without you, I would have no podcast. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, you have a great evening and happy holidays to you. And you as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye.